So that's what I'm saying. The text is like an object. It's gonna change perspective based on where you're standing. I don't know. Hello? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I missed you, baby sweet. It was a day, hmm? It was a day. Please tell me you're seeing this too. From Seattle, we are drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. So what are we drinking here, Michael? Today we are drinking a Pilsner, Northwest Pilsner from Hellbent Brewing Company. I think we've had this one before. Still tastes pretty good to me. Delicious. Um, today we're going to be recapping a perhaps one of the best decades in movie history, the 2010s. I like it. Starting off with some bold words. Yeah, yeah, I feel comfortable. The democratization of filmmaking has uh, given us more films than ever before in a decade. So, yeah, I'll say it's one of the best decades ever. Hot take. Starting out on, on a positive note. Yes. Well, th- there won't be too many negatives. That is kind of the point of the episode. Yeah. Sure, you don't want to talk about like worst of the decade? Sounds less fun. Uh, I, I really don't want to do that uh, in any way. Yeah, let's talk. Okay. Uh, do you want to start with our wounded soldiers, or do you want to give a little bit of a preamble about uh, all the different criteria and, and thoughtfulness and, and how much we wrestled with these choices and really went over it for thoroughness? Oh, I was still forming some of my picks within the last 15 minutes, so that gives you some sense of my scrambling. Um, yeah, some of these uh, picks have been pretty cemented uh in their place for a while others were uh in flux until very recently um but i feel pretty good i think about most of the picks what about you yeah i feel pretty confident almost everything was here in 2019 besides my number 10 which i almost just gave away but i will not which is a release from the year 2019 in america uh, everything else was probably the same that it's been since 2017, 2018. Not too much has changed on my list since I started forming it about a year and a half ago. Any, like, broad criteria that you use to put stuff on the top 10 features list? Or is it just kind of the gut feeling? These are the these are your favorites. These are my favorite bangers. That's that's what I went with. I, I thought, how would Trey Edward Schultz build his list? That's how I'm going to do it. It's a playlist. Yep. Greatest hits. Mm-hmm. Only note I really have on that note is that I do have one from each year. Made it very easy on myself that way. It became very, very difficult when I started pitting years against each other and that I did find myself maybe succumbing to recency bias to some extent, so that helped me uh, revisit some, some older titles. Uh so you've limited yourself to one from each year. Yeah. Otherwise, um, yeah, I, I, I might have been too tempted to revisit some ones that I really loved in the past couple of years because they're so fresh. So I did. Uh, yeah. Just want some representation from across the deck. Did you look back at your previous lists, your your end of the year top 10 lists and pick, end up picking the number one or number two from each of those years? Actually, no. There are a couple years where that didn't happen. Um, it's also a little funny for me to build the decade list when I feel like my own 
cinephilia didn't really kick into high gear until like 2016. Like that was kind of a pivotal year for me, even though I've loved and watched movies my whole life. There was a turning point during this decade Mm -hmm. where, you know, it just kind of came to that next level for me where I was like, this is like my thing. I love this stuff. Um, so, um, yeah, it just, you know, forced me to look at those first like five years in a little more depth, I guess. Yeah. A little bit more detail of who was I when I watched these and who am I now when I watch this and oh wow this is one of the greatest period pieces I've ever seen or this is one of the greatest uh you know Tom Cruise shooting aliens on a foreign planet movies I've ever seen is that on your list come on no Tom Cruise on my list but I I I stretched I, I looked for a way to do it couldn't find one uh, maybe Mission Impossible, if we had a technical achievement category like we do at, uh, you know, the half year point and the end of year, end of year reviews. I'd probably sooner go with Oblivion or Edge of Tomorrow, mm. but yeah, Oblivion for OST. Maybe the next Mission Impossible for the next decade. Oh, I hope so. Anyways, let's uh, let's move on to our wounded soldier. Would you like to begin? Nah, let's have you do it. Okay. Very first category, and I am breaking a rule already. We're off to a great start. Historically, our wounded soldiers um, have been defined as ones that were like critical, uh, not bombs, but below 60 or so on Metacritic, or they did poorly at the box office. Mm-hmm. For the context of this conversation, I started thinking about ones that I just couldn't find on any best of the decade List the one I picked ended up actually having a pretty good Metacritic rating. Um, and even last night when I was doing a little more research, I ended up finding it on one best of the decade list. So I completely screwed myself here. But my wounded soldier is Noah Baumbach's Mistress America, starring Lola Kirk and Greta Gerwig, uh, with whom Baumbach co-wrote the script. Um, Kirk plays a college freshman in New York City who is uh, kind of stumbling through her first few weeks of school when she meets her soon-to-be stepsister, played by Gerwig. Um, her name is Brooke. And she is instantly kind of fascinated by Brooke. She's this hip, exuberant, 30-something-year-old um, who uh, Kirk's character is not only, you know, uh, instantly friends with, but also sees as maybe inspiration for a story because... Mm-hmm. Uh, Kirk's character wants to be a writer and uh, yeah I don't know that this is towards the top of many people's lists of Bombach's work um, it could be I, maybe that's not a fair statement but for me it's screwball comedy that's the flavor of it and that's the what I love it's the lightness and its personality that feels like old-fashioned screwball comedy modernized in a really fun way um I love these performances. I think Kirk is incredibly endearing. Um, The exuberance that Gerwig has is so fun. And while it's light, I think like a lot of screwball comedies, it it has that kind of thinly veiled uh, layer of darkness just beneath the frivolity. Um, Yeah, it's accessible. It's funny. It's light and easily, easily rewatchable for me. Uh, Mistress America. Hi, this is Tracy Fishko. I go to college in the city and my mom said I should call you. 
Uh, my mom is marrying your dad. Do you want to hang out? Do you know where Times Square is? Tracy! Times Square is so crazy. Isn't it? I don't know anyone who lives here. Yours truly. I got off the bus from Jersey. I thought this was the cool place to live. It's Times Square. So stylish. I know. I freelance as an interior decorator. You know the Bowery Hotel? Oh my god, yeah. Well, if you walk about a block south, there's a laser hair removal center that's very hip. I did the waiting room. I think I might take a a little bit of a of an issue with with the description of joviality you give it. I maybe I'm misremembering, but about two thirds in, doesn't it get fairly dark when when something comes to light between um, some characters and they go to like a a neighbor a house somewhere and find something out? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I mean this as the first few lines of this movie indicate it is in part a story of betrayal yeah okay um, so it, there is a little bit more darkness absolutely yeah, okay. um brooke's character she is a she is a woman with many passions and interests all of which are very funny and endearing but her main goal is to oh yeah it was the fashion thing right so that too she had a and friend, then her friend her. and that's the house that they go to and yeah, no, exactly. I really liked this movie. This is one of is my favorite Bombac movies. Yeah, but the tone is very light. This is breezy. Really? I remember absolutely. it being kind of, for me, kind of a gloomy dark um, sometimes. For also me, very, it's, very it's light. immediately accessible. I wouldn't describe it as a dark film. I think for me, it's first and foremost very digestible. Yeah. Um, but you're right. I mean, I think that's what makes it great is that it has that screwball flavor while it is also about... Um, when reality collides with your dreams, Brooke has this dream of opening a restaurant that has all these kinds of crazy things or that she envisions it will have like Mm -hmm. a back room with where people can do yoga, a little cafe where kids can do their homework. And it's always seems a little far fetched when she describes it. And this came out in 2015. It's no spoiler because people probably have seen it by now. That dream does not come true. And I think it is partly about, um, uh, you know how crushing it is to have your dreams not come true when reality uh, comes crashing in. Um, so, yeah, I think you're right. There is, you know, meaning beneath um, some of the, the comedy because I think it is a very funny movie, first and foremost. I, th- I think I also remember having to having the awkwardness effect of it where there's like there's some scenes that are just so awkward that you don't want to watch. Oh, yeah. Which Bombac is kind of the king of. Um, so to me, that is dark because it just that's how i interpret it so maybe it's not dark dark but i I definitely remember not wanting to look at the screen uh about two-thirds of the way into that film i really liked it though it's a good choice my wounded soldier is from a very little known director by the name of terrence malick uh this film is called knight of cups it in fact does follow all of the rules for a wounded soldier uh, it stars Christian Bale. It has a preposterous amount of talent, um, both behind the screen and in front of the screen. I don't think this is one of the projects Trey worked on, um, but it, it could be one of the ones. He also worked on Song to Song, and Voyage of Time, and a few others. Um, but it's um, it's a vignette story of a man who's at odds with his identity and different women bring different um 
sounds and um, recollections and voiceover styles to his identity and to us, the audience who were inhabiting the identity by hearing it. Um, I really love it. A lot of people are very passionate about either hating it or loving it. Um, I would encourage anyone who likes Malik to at least give it a shot because I think that what he and Bale do um, with the voiceover and all these uh, additional actresses that he falls in love with, has these experiences with, is um, it, it's a very emotional experience that I enjoyed. All of those years living the life of someone I didn't even know. Let me tell you about you. I want to make you rich. You see the palm trees. They tell you anything's possible. No one cares about reality anymore. <laughs> Different these days. What's going on with you? I can't remember a man I wanted to be. Just don't threaten me with leaving, okay? Just do what you want to do. You don't want love. You want a love experience. They are like flavors. Sometimes you want raspberry, then after a while you want some strawberry. You have love in you. I know it. Blind. Suppose it isn't there for me. I saw Night of Cups back when it came out. It was definitely not in the camp that hated it. It was maybe somewhere in the middle where I didn't respond to it in a big way. But it is one that does seem to kind of uh, call me back. I do kind of have an itch to revisit it. Um, I think I'd probably rather revisit it over song to song. Just, you know, in a similar style for Mm -hmm. sure for Malik. Um, But uh, yes, it is a much better pick than mine in many ways for the Wounded Soldier category. Because (laughs) uh, this was considerably more divisive. Yes, yes, at least points-wise. Anyways, on to number 10. What is your number 10 film of the decade, Michael? My number 10 is The Souvenir. You're very special, Jerry. No, I don't think I am. Oh, no, you don't think you are. Very normal, really. You're not normal at all. I feel as though I want to not not live my whole life in this very privileged um, part of the world I come from. I want to be really aware about what's going on around me. Sorry, sorry. We can all be sincere, but um, what's it all for? From 2019. From 2019. Directed by Joanna Hogg. Regular listeners of the show will have already heard me talk about this three times. I think I'm going to keep this somewhat brief because we talked about it when it first came out. We talked about it when it came out at the halfway point in 2019 and again at the end of the year. So this was your number one, correct? It was. Absolutely. Um, And it's uh, by the British filmmaker Joanna Hogg. It's a semi-autobiographical story about her experiences as a, a Film student in 1980s Britain, while she was also in a toxic relationship with a heroin addict. Um, I, I wholeheartedly loved the performances. Uh, Honor Swinton 
Byrne plays Hogg's stand-in. I also really like Tom Burke, who plays the boyfriend. I really, really love the the style and the the kind of static compositions and the kind of elliptical feel of it. Um, and I think it's very sad, but it feels just so kind of honest and private and self reflective all the words I've already used to describe it on previous episodes but I love all those same things those haven't really changed um I had the pleasure of watching it twice since your Christmas present to me was the blu-ray of the souvenir that's correct and uh loved it just as much on on second viewing there were things I didn't pick up on on first viewing such as um I thought I had seen um Julie Hogs stand in first meet this um, boyfriend at this party that the movie opens in and you see her looking at this guy sitting on a couch and and she's looking at the back of his head and I kind of had remembered that being um, her first the first time she noticed him right that was the first memory she had mm-hmm. presumably and then I realized on the second viewing um, it's actually not really the first interaction because before that we don't even see him, but she comes down to the front door and opens the door and somebody else says, Hey, Julie, um, this is Tom. And she says, Oh, nice to meet you, Tom. I don't think his name's not Tom. That's the actor's name. I'm, his name is escaping me. Um, but I had totally missed that the first time because you wouldn't know until you've seen this character that he is the one who becomes her boyfriend. Um, it's just those kinds of details that I think are really distinctive and and kind of fun and say something about um the way in which different memories kind of stick out in your head um and uh yeah i think it's it's kind of a challenging watch because it's a a sad story but um i think it is a remarkably uh distinctive kind of uh visual memoir that's the souvenir what is your number 10 my number 10 is also from the year 2019. It is also my number one film from that year. It is Gaspar Noé's Climax. Oh, you're so good. You liked it? I'm so happy. I couldn't be happier. <laughs> This is a nightmare-filled, inducing trip on Sangria at a dance party in a school in the middle of a snowy countryside that starts with the ending and ends with the beginning and is, you know, a, a light your hair on fire, die from poisoning, children die from electrocution. I'm scared. <laughs> throughout it's just uh it's a good time that's what all these words i'm saying mean a very good time the uh the lens and how noe uses it um in conjunction with the editing is some of the most exciting filmmaking i saw in the entire decade 
and it's one of the best ensemble pieces uh, by a group of performers I've ever seen as well. So um, it's Climax, currently streaming on Amazon Prime. If you're thinking, gosh, what does a living nightmare look like? Check it out. Bring grandma, bring the kids. <laughs> fun for the whole family. Maybe not grandma. I could see kids liking it, but... There's a child. But not grandma. Uh, on to the squanderies. What do you got, Michael? You want to do squandered actor or actress first? Let's go with whichever way you're leaning. I'm not too passionate. All right. The actor who I thought was a bit squandered over the past decade was Luis Guzman. Uh, back, I think, around like the 2000s, when I was quickly doing my research for this category, I'd kind of forgotten that Luis Guzman had worked with like PTA, Soderbergh, De Palma. He worked with some great directors. That's right. He worked with Soderbergh. Yeah. Great directors. Um we mentioned uh, the movie The Count of Monte Cristo also just before recording. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that movie a lot. I don't recall who made that movie, but I, I like that movie and he's great in that. Uh, I think Luis Guzman is a terrific character actor. And, and a he, comedic actor. Yeah, he's hilarious. Um, I I was struggling to think of even a single movie he had been in over the past decade and it looks like he has been busy when I looked up his IMDb profile. Um... But uh, someone who I just have missed seeing on screen this past decade because the movies our paths have not crossed. <laughs> and I just think um, he needs uh, to, to, to get back to, to work with maybe some auteurs who I think can really um, bring that potential to life. Yeah. Um, Luis Guzman. Hopefully we'll see him in the 2020s. Hi. I hope so. Let's get him in a Villeneuve movie. Get him in a Nolan movie. Get him in two PTA movies. Let's let's go for it. Let's Let's go ham. Um, My squandered actor, much like your choice, would do great to work with any auteurs besides Danny Boyle. And my choice for squandered actor is Ewan McGregor, who is a truly fantastic actor who had a great turn in the uh, limited series season three Fargo, which unfortunately was his best performance of the decade, which was, I mean, for our show in a television show, I love TV. We don't talk about it much here. He played two different characters, two brothers in that show. It's a fascinating and very, very good performance. But as far as film goes, he had an extremely mediocre um, decade compared to the decade beforehand. Um, and I think that in the 2020s, um, maybe if he stops with the uh, superhero movie right now, superhero movies, you know, he did that Suicide Squad one or whatever it is that's just about to come out right now. Is that right? He's in that? He's in the Harley Quinn one. I did not know that. So, um, not the most promising start to 2020 as a decade, or the 2020s, I should say, but I think that if he were to maybe do an Ang Lee film, which I know maybe isn't the hottest name for an auteur right now, um, I I think that he, like Will Smith, has the ability to bend the rules of a camera 
to them as a performer, um, which is what Will Smith did for Gemini Man and just something that Ang Lee happens to be able to do with the the navigation of his lens. So I, I'd like to see him in that sort of a thing. He's not a very grounded actor. I don't care to see him do train spotting part three again as this gritty performance. I want to see fun, um, magnetic, magnanimous Ewan McGregor with his full repertoire of, of, of all the different slur that he can make his voice sound like. I just, I want it and I want it now. I want it for fun. Do you like him as Obi-Wan Kenobi? I love him as Obi-Wan Kenobi. Me too. Right? I'm a fan. He's the best. Um, so that's my choice for squandered actor. I love him. That's why I chose him. On to squandered actress. Who you got, Michael? My squandered actress is Rose Byrne, who has been in movies that I did like, but I liked mainly just because she was in them. Um, I think her... Perhaps her best movie of the decade was Bridesmaid, or where I, I thought she was hilarious in Bridesmaid. I I, I love Bridesmaid. Well, uh, in general, Neighbors. I also greatly enjoyed Neighbors. Um, I think she just had a hilarious. There. Yeah, yeah. I think she has such comic chops. Um, she's always just so fun to watch. She's such a pleasure to see, and I would just. Not to suggest that there isn't value in the kind of middle-brow fair that I think she has appeared in quite a bit over the past decade. But, but I think she has a knack for. That that does seem to be where she has resided. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I like some of those movies. Um, Instant Family, I also saw that recently. That is a perfectly charming movie, and she is a big part of that. I just think that she has chops that... Um, could really be put to use in um better better movies to, to put it quite simply movies more like peter rabbit i do yeah i i have not seen peter rabbit myself um i think there is a sequel coming out so i don't oh, know there that is. there is a turning point anytime soon in her career you um, you wait until your nephew uh niece niece you wait until your niece is like three years older and you have to watch movies with her you're gonna be thanking god peter rabbit exists i know um yeah i don't know that i have like directors in mind that i just see as like a natural fit but i don't know some you know even game night i think is a better kind of comedy than the ones she's <laughs> in i could see her maybe in, in a you know ianucci kind of comedy um i don't know just some uh some fair with uh with a little more personality yeah, um, that uh, I think could really uh, give her the spotlight she deserves because I think she is hilarious and. Great. Mm. But I think Jason Bateman might be an interesting director mm. for her because he has an extremely good comedic temperament, um, and he's also a very um, capable filmmaker. He's he made the TV show Ozarks as well, but he's uh, yeah. he's made a few films. Yeah, Jason. Oh, that's Bateman. my pitch. Check it. Check her out. All right. Who is your squandered actress? My squandered actress is none other than the Jodie Foster. She is a very capable, good film director. She directed an episode of Black Mirror. She directed Money Monster. She directed The Beaver. Uh, The Beaver had Mel Gibson and Jennifer Lawrence and, um, gosh, uh, Anton Yelchin. 
you know, like, like just a, an incredible cast. It's a movie that was quite maligned, but I, I have a very soft spot for it. Came out in 2011. Uh, Money Monster had George Clooney. Um, it is actually, in my opinion, a very sharp film. And then um, her Black Mirror episode was very good, but her performances as an actress um, kind of run counter parallel to everything I just said. Um, they were extremely disappointing. Most recently, we saw her in Hotel Artemis, which was uh, terrible, to put it lightly. Um, it also featured Dave Bautista, who is amazing, and one of his projects will pop up later today. It also had Sophia Butella, which she just got mentioned, her project Climax. Um, so Jodie Foster is, I, I think that, if she acts in a, a big time filmmaker's project like a Villeneuve, um, she could easily have a return to force. Um, I see her in the same lens as a Robin Wright, where if you give her um, responsibility and austerity um, with how the camera shoots her, then she will give it back tenfold. If you don't and you shoot her poorly, you get what you saw in Hotel Artemis. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When I think Jodie Foster, I think Silence of the Lambs and those those close ups that Demi uses. So good in that. I don't feel like I've seen a performance from her quite like that in a, in a while. So fully support this choice. Thank you. On to number nine of the 2010s. What have you got, Michael? My number nine is House of Tolerance by the French writer-director Bertrand Benello. I just as easily could have picked another movie of his called Nocturama, which Taylor was not a huge fan of, I understand. I was um, not. I partly went with this one because I saw this much more recently, only within the last couple months. I saw it partly because I had seen it on multiple um, best of the decade lists, and that's that's why we make the list. Is to, that's why. You know, Find stuff we we didn't know. It had been on my radar ever since I liked Nocturama, but this had certainly um, put some urgency around checking checking it out, and uh, I really liked it. Uh, it's about the women who work in a high class brothel in Paris, right around the uh, start of the twentieth century. It's essentially an ensemble piece. Um, one of the most recognizable actresses is uh, Adele Hanel. People uh-huh. now would probably most associate with Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I believe um, she won an award for uh, best uh, supporting actor or like premiere um, actress mm. for that film. Really? Uh-huh. That's interesting. I think she's had a very good decade. She actually crossed yeah. my mind. Um, I loved her in this um, drama BPM, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, The Unknown Girl. I think she's had a lot of really good movies this decade. Um, but, uh, I just was completely absorbed with, uh, Benello's filmmaking here. Um, he has kind of this observational approach where we, it's almost kind of slice of life and that we're watching these women, um, you know, as they live out their lives as prostitutes. And, um, he has all these kind of different techniques that he's using split screens and a really anachronistic music. Um, it's, um, partly just about, you know, their subjugation by wealthy men and how, um, kind of stuck in the position, um, they, they are, that they're in, they are very much stuck in the position they're in. Um, 
and I think it's a very kind of empathetic portrait of um, these women while also not sparing us any of the, um, you know, uncomfortable aspects of it. Um, but I think it's just absolutely gorgeously rendered with these really dark colors, dark reds and blacks, um, you know, with this lavish production design um, and this really fluid camera work that just really kind of immerses you in the house of the brothel. Um, just really, really uh, uh, effective uh, filmmaking for me. That is House of Tolerance. J'aime profondément les putains. Je les trouve merveilleuses. Si nous ne parlons pas, comment éclairer la nuit La maison, elle va fermer Je sais pas. Et ce soir, il va falloir montrer un peu de choix, s'il vous plaît. Yes, madame. Musique, bitte. This is a song about a bad girl. Did you have time to check this one out or no? I started it and then was unable to finish it, not because I didn't love it, but because I just didn't get to it. Priorities. I I made it about 20 minutes in and then I had to go see Cats, I think, on New Year's Day um, because that was the last day that there was going to be a sold out theater to see cats in. And if you're going to see cats, you have to see it in a sold out theater because no one wants to be alone in a theater watching cats. That sounds way scarier than anything that happens. Right. So, uh, after that, I just didn't get to it because I didn't. And I feel bad about it, but now maybe because of you putting it on your list, I'll finish it. It's, I still have where I'm left off at. I'll, I'll pick it. It awaits you. I'll pick it up. Um, what is your number nine? My number nine is a film um, slightly less well-known than your number nine. It is uh, Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. <laughs> Never heard of it. Yeah. So this is a war movie uh, based around the Dunkirk um, city during World War II. Um for the evacuation from France to England, um, in which Tom Hardy made me cry like a, a little child on multiple viewings. I cry harder and harder every time I watch his scene in which his plane engines give out because these ran out of gasoline, but he continues to glide on strafing the fighters to protect the men in the boats as they flee back to England. Um, this is my favorite war film of the decade. This is, um, this is one of my favorite films ever. Um, (laughs) Period. I, I don't really know how to explain it. Um, I was very unpassionate about it the first time I saw it, um, which was just in a normal theater. Um, normal 2D screen. And then I saw it in IMAX the following day. Um, and that made a huge difference. It's one of the first times that that popped for me. Um, just getting to see the full letterboxed, um, and, and have those sounds and have the time to process it. Cause the first time I saw it, I didn't really 
understand why I was juggling all these characters. I didn't really know what the rules were, what was happening. I just was unfamiliar with a lot of it. Um, and then I saw it a week later at the Cinerama. Ooh, and that's that, the place to see it. that build up, um, allowing me to get inside of it and really understand it. Um, yeah, this is uh, a, a war film that I would encourage anyone without PTSD to watch. If you do have mm. PTSD from a real war, um, probably don't watch this. It's extremely realistic. Um, it's been compared to Saving Private Ryan, and um, it's a bloody war film. That's right. If, I'm trying to remember now. Was it PG-13? Mm-hmm. I, mean, I remember it is. Um violent like there are bombs and gunfire and everything but i can't remember if there was gore like this is i think the kind of war movie that like i don't know people who normally can't take that kind of thing could still very much enjoy yeah the thing about this one is it's suffocating because they're in boats that are sinking Mm -hmm. so all the men get trapped inside the boat and drown slowly um there's a lot of metaphors made i think about like you know, being trapped inside of a tuna can and all the sailors are a bunch of tuna, that type of thing. Um, so it's not super gory. Um, I think there's a few scenes with people getting shot visibly. Mainly it's just um, metal getting perforated, whether it's a boat or an airplane, though. Um, but this is my favorite war film. That's my number nine. Um, it's Nolan. It's good. Check it out if you haven't seen it. I would be perfectly happy swapping that out with most a a lot of movies on my list that'd be that'd be up there for sure good uh on to what star was born in the year or not the year what star was born in the decade of the 2010s who you got michael i'm tempted to change mine we were discussing what constitutes a rising star for this category Oh, not a rising star. A star that's been born. A star that has... See, that was the confusion, I think, over the name of the category. It was initially a star is born, meaning which stars were in fact born in this Mm -hmm. decade versus uh, rising stars, ones that I thought were... Which is what you wrote. Yes. Exactly right. Which one, which directors do which I you, think in you, the 2020s? You've been doing this for a while now. <laughs> I know. In the 2020s, who do I think will come to prominence? So, yeah, there are directors like um, Ari Aster, who I don't think is your pick, right? To use him as an example. No, I didn't pick a, right. a director. I, it, it, arguably, he has risen. That was kind of how I thought about certain directors like that whereas i thought about who are the directors that we will say came to prominence in the 2020s that they are in that sense currently rising uh so my no, rising is who was born which star <laughs> was born so we have two different interpretations based of... on bradley cooper's a star is born that's how this category was developed sir two interpretations of the category we created so my my pick is matty diop actually okay for Atlantics, um, critically acclaimed 2019 uh, debut. Um, uh, that's not how you lead that off. Criterion Collection official print. That's Matty right. Diop's Atlantics. I, I was very excited to see that. Thought that was cool. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I I really liked Atlantics. We talked about that in depth on the podcast already. Um, it 
is just one that has stuck with me in the sense that I keep thinking there is just a display of some instinctual um, filmmaking on display there. Like it just feels to me like the person behind the camera there knows what she's doing. And even though this was a very widely acclaimed movie in 2019, it's her debut feature. Mm -hmm. And I am very eager to see in the next 10 years what she follows that up with. And I think that will um, be considered the decade in which she kind of rose to prominence. Um, so, uh, Matty Diop, excited to see what she does next. I am too. Um, so my star is born was envisioned as a star who was born in and of the decade we are speaking, which is the 2010s. And my choice is Adam Driver who began his career in the year 2010, according to IMDb credits, and up until 2019 had one of the best single-decade runs I think that any actor at any point in history has had. Um, now, whether or not all of his movies are, you know, success, definitely not. But I think all of his performances are extremely consistent um, with him giving his all to what he understands the performance to be. Um, he brings a different energy almost to every single project. Um, I think of the Noah Baumbach film, uh, while we're young, is that what it's called? Mm -hmm. It's so, so, so different than who he is in marriage story, another Baumbach film, but that's equally as, as different as who he is in the, the man who killed Don Quixote. Um, He's just an uh, incredibly refreshing performer who uh, is throaty and, and wholehearted. And I can't imagine any other character playing opposite of John David Washington and Black Klansman. Like, he is just such a multi-talented director, actor to me. Um, and, and a real thespian um, in this age that has very few developing um, actors of his caliber. Um, so the star is born in the 2010s and the star is Adam Driver on to number eight in the 2010s. What is your number eight film of the whole decade, Michael? My number eight is one we already talked about, and it's also my wounded soldier and that's Mistress America. So I won't, uh, repeat too much. I can maybe just call out some of the particular details I like that I didn't already describe. Um, one that I think this one detail this movie is maybe most uh, known for is its finale, which, as you alluded to, is in this country house in upstate New York where Greta Gerwig and Lola Kirk's character go in hopes of finding financing for Gerwig's restaurant. <laughs> She's hoping to get it off the ground. It's the house where her ex-boyfriend lives and her ex-best friend lives. Uh, according to Brooke, the ex-best friend betrayed her and stole her boyfriend. Um, and, and her business. And her t-shirt business. Correct. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's this hilarious um, yeah, kind of screwball farce with people coming in and out of different rooms in this big mansion spitting that 
pinball machine like dialogue from one person to the next you know that's uh just part of the genre um that's all really funny you have new characters kind of um entering this scene and then and leaving um it's just kind of how it has that electricity of it that's very funny at the same time it's leading right up to the kind of heartbreak that the movie is partly all about um so uh yeah just another reason to go see mistress america from noah bombach that is my number eight what is yours my number eight is a capital film from the coen brothers called hail caesar it is a prestige picture from Capital Pictures. Uh, it stars uh, Josh Brolin as Eddie Mannix, a man who runs Capital Pictures' lot and is very um, penitent for the fact that he can't quite give up his cigarette habit for his wife. Um, he's balancing a great many things from his lead performer getting kidnapped by communists to um, some scandals that Tilda Swinton twins are trying to report on to Lockheed Martin trying to hire him away from Capitol Pictures and um, oh, tour that were so simple to, to describe the, the many joys of this film uh, from Alden Ehrenreich uh, yodeling and and jumping back and forth in a lasso or, or making his spaghetti into a lasso and, and just circling up a, a, a dame's finger. This film is everything that anybody ever wanted a classic golden age era picture to be. In the here and the now, you get Scarlett Johansson as a um, smoky voiced, no bullshit, tired of the... Uh, of all the attention Hollywood star. Uh, you get Jonah Hill as a, I don't even know how to describe Jonah. He is a notary public for the, um, the picture company who had served time for them and gone to jail because of something that the company had done. So he's the professional person who becomes the company person when they need him to be the company person. It's just a spectacular film. As soon as I turn it on, I start smiling. I have a great time. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. How long since your last confession, my son? 27 hours. It's really too often. You're not that bad. Here at Capitol Pictures, as you know, millions of people look to us for information and uplift and, yes, entertainment. And we're going to give it to them. And action. An army of technicians and actors and top-notch artistic people are working hard to bring to the screen our biggest release of the year. Hail Caesar is a prestige picture with one of the biggest stars in the world, Baird Whitlock. A truth we could see if we had, but... If we had... It has Channing Tatum. What else do you need? This is not one of my favorite Coen Brothers movies, as you know, as some listeners know. But there are things I like about it, for sure. Um, Alden Ehrenreich, I do really like him in that movie, which 
I think we talked about him way back in the day when we talked mm-hmm. about Hail Caesar. Um, he's one that I kind of remember people talking about as um, on the verge of great stardom mm-hmm. this decade, right? Because he had Hail Caesar. I think it. I think he maybe followed that up with the um, uh, solo. It, yeah, there was the one with Warren Beatty in it as well, somewhere in the mix, but I don't remember what the uh, order of those was. Hmm. Um, who, yeah, that's, I feel like that stardom really hasn't come to be, which is a shame because I, I did really enjoy him as the uh, Western star. Yeah, I, th- Hail Caesar. I think it's coming. I think it's still coming. I think yeah. that as he hits his 30s, it'll, it'll is take he, is he, I didn't realize he was that young. I think he's that young. I think he's, you know, around our age. I think that he's about to, you know. He's got time. Because he's younger than Scarlet, for sure. And Scarlet's only, like, five years older than us. Yeah. So, all right. That is my number eight. Empirically correct, of course. On to the best ensemble of the year. What is the... Not the year. The best ensemble of the decade, Michael. What's the best ensemble of the decade? I had a tough time. With this category, which I understand you did as well. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Like I told you, name any movie from any auteur and they probably have an amazing ensemble. So this is kind of a a bullshit choice, if ever there was one. Yeah. uh, Mine's kind of a uh, gut reaction, one that came to mind and just felt I felt good about it. So I'm going with it. And that's Kelly Reichardt's Certain Women. Um, It's a great film. And each girl has a pretty equal amount of time, very sturdy performances. Yeah, it's uh, from 2016. It's kind of a triptych about women in a small uh, northwest town, I believe. Montana. Is it Montana? Yeah. Um, Thank you. Starring Laura Dern and Michelle Williams, Kristen Stewart, and a newcomer named Lily Gladstone. And I think, uh, I mean these are all just just terrific performances by these women and i I think um it's super cool to see someone so established and professional like laura dern kick it off and then it end with a newcomer in lily gladstone's um part of the story she's with uh kirsten stewart and a kind of romance or a almost romance in the third chapter of the uh movie or like um, the first tenth of the third chapter of the movie yeah because um, Stuart's out of there pretty quick right in that chapter i yeah i yeah, think I that's right so. um yeah i remember being i i really liked the movie when i saw it i wasn't a wholeheartedly in love with it and yet it has just kind of stuck with me in, in a way i didn't expect and um, i think it's very much because of these uh women so that's my ensemble pick. What is I love that yours? Movie. My ensemble pick, which is empirically correct, of course, <clears throat> is the film Spotlight. Mm. I put a lot of thought into this, and I feel best about Spotlight because there's a fairly equal amount of time given to most the the main characters. Um, the only one that doesn't have as much time is Lee Schreiber. But what he does with his brief time, I think, is even more impressive than what everybody else does with their more time, which is like Mark Ruffalo, Rachel McAdams, Michael Keaton. Um, so my that's my choice. It's pretty well defined as an ensemble piece. 
it's a takedown of the Catholic Church um, for what they've done to children. Um, I'm pretty passionate about the film for that reason. I, I really like it. Um, and there's there's not too much to hammer on about other than it's it's a fantastic picture and it's called Spotlight. And it's got the best ensemble of the decade, Michael. That one came to mind because Rachel McAdams kind of came to mind when I was thinking about Squandered because of how great she is here. I was like, why has she not been in more this decade? I loved her here. I thought she was hilarious in Game Night. Um, mm-hmm. uh, she doesn't um, She doesn't put out a lot of work, volume-wise. Um, I would say it could be because there's limited roles for women, Michael. That is certainly possible. Um would like to see more from her. Agreed. On to number seven of the decade. My number seven, coincidentally, is another Kelly Record film. This one's what? from 2010, and that is Meek's Cutoff, uh, starring Michelle Williams, again, mm-hmm. uh, a great director-actress uh, pairing for, for, throughout both of their careers. Um, it is about, uh, starring um, many others, this is very much an ensemble piece, um, it's about a group of settlers um, traveling by covered wagon through Oregon in the middle of the whoa, 19th whoa, whoa. century. Through the rolling hills of the Ooh, West. Nice. I like the tone there, too. Yeah. You should have, can we get like a version of that movie with you narrating? That'd be nice. Uh yeah, this is one I did not see when it came out in 2010. I only saw it within the last couple of years, but was completely floored by it. I wish I had had a chance to revisit it before the podcast, but it has stuck with me in a very real way. Um, it's partly just about the difficulty of their journey and them kind of them losing their way. Um, one of the men in this group of settlers um, claims to know a shortcut to their destination. I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, and that only leads them further off the path to where they mm-hmm. want to go. Um, but it's um, uh, told with an with a very clear eye towards the perspective of the women um, in this group, and partially interested in sort of the arrogance and ineptitude of the men, but also just the fear of this group as they start um, losing water, as people are literally dying, and um, just that sense of panic kind of coming in as they um are lost essentially mm-hmm. um but yeah i mean it just kind of has it all it's just a really really lived in period piece the framing the rhythm of it the performances um you just feel like you were st- kind of out there stranded lost with them um uh i love it Fall of land downhill. We need water. That much I know. That's what you think, that we're lost? I'd say that seems about the right word for it. We're not lost. We're just finding our way. I don't blame him for not knowing. I blame him for saying he did. We made our decision. This is only a bad dream soon. It's going to be a story to tell. Meek's Cutoff. It's a great film. I really like that film. My number seven is a very unknown film from a very small time director. Once again, Uh, his name is Denny Villeneuve. It's a little film starring Ryan Gosling, Anna DeArmas, Harrison Ford, Robin Wright, 
Jared Leto. It's called Blade Runner 2049. It's fucking beautiful to look at. I rewatched it in 4K before the episode. And my goodness, does Roger Deakins know how to shoot a beautiful picture when he's not making something dumb like 1917? My goodness. The end with the uh, water coming down as the cars sinking into the water, like those shots are incredible. The, the gliding over the city and the, the Puget, um, what would that be? A hover car. Oh my gosh. It's just, Oh, it's, it's, this is one of the coolest, uh, I guess remake, reboot, sequels all put together that I've ever had the pleasure of witnessing. And it's one of the best sci-fi films of the decade in an extremely rich decade of sci-fi films. We won't talk about Ex Machina. That's a great sci-fi film that came out this decade. Um, so this this is beautiful. And Villeneuve and Deacons did equal parts work. I mean, you have Mackenzie Davis in a tiny little role who completely brings the the streets to life um, in a way that that they just don't come to life without her. We talk about, you know, cyborgs and humans um, being able to procreate, which doesn't sound interesting until you see the, the artistic way that they kind of expose it. I mean, the beauty of a dead tree. This is the film... You looked at me a little bit peculiarly when I said Dave Bautista. That's right. It literally just clicked. This is the Dave Bautista vehicle. Um, Yeah, this is one of my favorite films of the decade, and I think it's one of the best sequels that we've ever gotten from a different director um, many years later, and I think that it'll continue to speak um, for a volume of time. I thought you might be able to help me with the case. Any idea where I could find him? Your police plan on taking me in. I would much prefer that to the alternative. Every leap of civilization built off the back of slaves. Replicants are the future, but I can only make so many. I had the luck, and he has the key. I think I found him. That's not possible. If this gets out, we've bought ourselves a war. Yeah, this is kind of like the definition of like a blockbuster with personality put out by a big studio Mm -hmm. right like that's that's dope i love to see that this is the type of thing you get when sony says let's try to take on disney somehow and they kind of close their eyes and write a check Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they made back more than they spent so at least there's that i like it we're on to top three docs of the decade what is your number three top doc of the decade michael i'm going to caveat my own picks first and just say that as i was thinking about this category 
I did think about how I just don't watch very many documentaries. When I was looking back at my own letterbox That's stats. That's true. You do not. I, you know, watch over, you know, a couple hundred movies a year. Sometimes I over 300. I think since I joined Letterbox in like 2016, I've only seen like a little over 100. I've that's seen more like, than that and I joined Letterbox two years after you, I think. Yeah, like that's when, that's, you should make a, you know, a, a best of the year list with 100 docs maybe. Um, so I have seen a kind of pathetic number to be choosing the best documentaries of the decade. So these are just ones that stood out to me among the ones I've seen. So with that qualifier out there, my number three is Rat Film from 2016. Uh, Still directed. haven't gotten to it. Haven't seen this one yet? Oh, I thought you had. I thought we had talked about it. No. Nope. We talked about me watching, watching it. it. Yeah. Got it. Uh, yeah, it's from 2016. It's directed by Theo Anthony. It is about rats in Baltimore, the history of Baltimore's rat problem, in addition to um, the history of race and segregation and poverty in Baltimore. And it is really fascinating to me how Neo Theo Anthony takes these two different issues and lays them on top of each other and identifies these fascinating parallels between them. Um, sometimes in quite literal ways, it's a very creatively constructed doc where, you know, uh, sometimes you're looking at maps of the city and seeing where the rat problem is at its worst and how that relates to where, um, segregation is clear. Um, you find, uh, and follow fascinating characters, like people who hunt the rats for fun. Um, he's using things like Google maps and the Google maps, um, voice you know throughout Mm -hmm. uh it's got a killer score from dan deacon just kind of this off-kilter electronic thing um it's super inventive really fascinating and meaningful and just an easy watch um definitely streaming now rat film check it out i'm still working on it my number three is a smaller documentary than yours for sure Mine is Terrence Malick's The Voyage of Time, Life's Journey. Um, we go from scope. rats to the cosmos. <laughs> in scope, it's a little bit um, bigger. Uh, it, um, Geez, how do you explain this? This is a documentary that I believe was envisioned as a project to be made for um, IMAX specifically. Um, however... It, you know, didn't have a big run. And um, the voiceover, I believe, was performed by Christian Bale. Um, It follows dinosaurs. It follows the evolution of life. It goes into the cosmos and explores um, some of the stuff that we see there. It doesn't really make too many assertions or claims so much as allow us to play witness to nature. And... um, the experience that I had viewing it like that was uh, incredibly enriching and one of my favorites of the decade. Did you see it in IMAX? I did not. That I would very much like. I would have too. The guy in dinosaurs, he likes them, huh? I think so. I think so. <laughs> one I still need to see myself. What is your number two? My number two is also from 2016, and that is OJ Made in America from Ezra Edelman. Uh, It's part of the 
ESPN 30 for 30 series, which it's I a, never thought. That's a short documentary, right? Anybody can just pick that up and watch it today. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's only, yeah, three parts, a couple hours each part, I think. I think it's like 18 that. hours, right? Definitely not 18 hours. Not 18? Okay. No, no, definitely not. Um, but it is a three-part documentary. Each part is, I think, an hour and a half to two hours. So it is a long one. Um, and it is about the rise and fall of O.J. Simpson. Um, Whoa, he fell? He had a bit of a fall from grace, you might say. Um, and it is a long sit. Um, it's streaming on HBO. And it... Seven hours and 47 minutes. There we go. Um, I, yeah, definitely did not have time to revisit this one, but still so vividly remember how gripped I was by this documentary and how just astounding it is to me that it looks at, uh, fame and wealth and gender and race and how all those factors uh, played into OJ's rise and fall and the big trial. And it goes into each of those areas in such depth, like in the way so many docs, in, in, in the way you wish so many docs would dive deeper into these categories. It, it just gets there. It just plums all of these different uh, variables that were at play. And it's so riveting at the same time that it looks at all those different issues. Um well, so, they were in a unique position of all that airtime that was exhausted on OJ as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, to, to get all that footage. and That's my understanding. They assembled a bunch of that news footage and all that stuff together because there's more of that from the 90s. I, th- I think he was the most covered TV person in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I just think it is supremely intelligent in its construction and assembly of material in charting this really clear um arc and and the way in which all of those um things were at play um and yeah it's uh streaming so highly recommended my number two is netflix's icarus this is a documentary about the russian doping program um it takes place um, concurrently while the um, the doping program is being discovered, essentially. Um, there's a, our main character, besides the doctor, who I do not recall the name of, is a biker, um, a pedal biker, who is wanting to learn how to cheat the system and dope to win a race. Um, a bike race and he's working with the chief doping agent of Russia and um, about I think a third of the way through the documentary all of a sudden everything kind of goes sideways you start to find out that the man who's been guiding him through the um, doping program is kind of in trouble and that the Russian um government is leaning on him and um there's there's a bunch to get into and i don't want to um misspeak because i haven't seen it in a number of years but um it is one of my favorite documentary experiences um it was kind of a toss-up for me between um icarus and this is not a film um i decided to go with icarus just because i i 
definitely know how true it is, whereas This Is Not a Film has had a lot of noises made about how it might not be an accurate representation. So I, I went with Icarus. I would encourage everyone to see this. It's on Netflix, and it would only encourage your depth of knowledge um, regarding the Russian doping agency in the Olympic Games, and as far as things like Lance Armstrong and having a better understanding about doping in competitive sports. One I still need to catch up with. I think that was Netflix won that award. Mm-hmm. I think that was the first one, uh, their first Oscar. Is that right? I don't know. I remember I was excited because I was like, I saw that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I still need to check it out. What's your number one of the decade, Michael? My number one, also from 2016, just a coincidence, I swear, that all three docs came from that year. Uh, the one year he watched docs. <laughs> this, <laughs> my number one doc, which is maybe just one of my favorite docs, period. It might be my favorite doc, period. That is Camera Person, directed by Kirsten Johnston, um, who is a documentary cinematographer by trade. And uh, this movie is made up of... Uh, recycled material essentially from documentaries she's worked on um, over her over the course of her career as a cinematographer um, it is uh, in part kind of a uh, memoir which I think she says as much in uh, in an opening statement where she explains the material you're about to see and uh, says she thinks of it herself as a kind of memoir mm-hmm. Um and it, it does uh, many different things. On one hand, um, it is sort of a uh, reckoning with her own role in um, making moving images. Um, many of these selected clips show us um, the ways in which she's kind of um, setting up a shot or we hear her, you know, talking from behind the camera or muttering to herself. It's always kind of um drawing to our attention that um the person this documentary is about to a very real extent is Kirsten Johnson the person making these images mm-hmm. um and the role she plays um in uh showing us what we see um and i i think about it every time i watch a documentary really of any kind um it's also in part about her own relationship with her uh, mother who's uh-huh. um, on screen uh, as she's in um, as, as she has Alzheimer's um, and it's uh, comprised of footage from all over the world all different countries and cultures um, many of which are hard to watch but I just think it's such a kind of um, powerful look at um what it means to be human to kind of use that cliche i just don't know how to get into it more specific than that um (laughs) but um it uh yeah has stuck with me in very very meaningful ways um it's a beautiful documentary you saw it recently so glad you liked it i i sure did there's a a uh, few scenes kind of stitched together that are of natural beauty, like sunflowers and meadows and stuff. And she'll just put a cue card over that of some fucking terrible mass murder that happened at this location or some serial raping of some group of people before the pogroms or something. And it's it's weird because you're disgusted by the writing, but the the visual beauty is is lovely Mm -hmm. and um 
the juxtaposition of that was awesome. Yeah, yeah. I concur. What is your number one documentary? My number one documentary of the decade is an HBO series as well. It's called The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst. This is one of the magical pieces of cinema from the decade for me. There's only a few pieces of cinema that I can really point to that kind of show the 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 truth um uh, of man um and how we are more of a mimetic creature than most people want to admit um meaning that we copy or lie or tell false truths until we're caught and this is a documentary following a man who's lived his whole life telling falsehoods and lying until he's accidentally caught at the very end of the documentary when he forgot to take his mic off and he goes into the bathroom and he's got terrible um, esophageal acid issues because he's lying so much. So he's burping and coughing and he talks to himself about, I, I won't say what, but the words that he says to himself cement his doom and after spending the amount of time you spend with this documentary i think it's something like 396 minutes i might be wrong it's just there's nothing like it it's it's one of the single best experiences i've ever had in the cinema let alone the decade um and although i didn't see it in the cinema it it is cinematic though um and it's one of the most deliberate interrogations of a subject who deserved to be interrogated that's fulfilling that I've ever seen. Um, I think there's a film called All That Remains. Um, if that sounds familiar, Ryan Gosling film. Um, oh, yeah, with Kristen Dunst? Yes. Um, in which he plays this character, Fred Durst, who is... Robert Durst, right? Robert Durst, sorry. Fred Durst is from Fred Lynn Durst Biscuit. is a <laughs> different guy. <laughs> Um, the director of that one John Travolta movie. That's um, <laughs> not on here. I don't know. I don't know. Um, anyways, Robert Durst is a a now known serial killer who would dress up as a woman um, it, to get away and cross state lines, and he'd faked his own deaths multiple times. Hence the the term the life and deaths of Robert Durst. Um, it, I believe it's still on HBO. I would encourage anyone who likes um, crime drama or or anything like that, um, true crime podcasts, to seek out that documentary because it is one of the genre-defining documentaries, I think. I don't remember. Is it a series or like a three-parter? Um, I'm, it must be a it, series. It's like a mini-series thing. Yeah. It, it didn't Four have multiple seasons, but yeah, I think that they did the whole shoot and then figured out how they would edit it. And, yeah. yeah. They dig deep on to number six of the decade. What have you got, Michael? My number six is another Coen brothers movie. I don't know that we have what? any directors across our two lists who are on, who appear twice. Uh, it is inside Lewin Davis from 2013. 
this stars Oscar Isaac and Carrie Mulligan. Um, and John Goodman, among others. I don't know that I would even mention Adam him. Adam Driver. And Adam Driver, of course. Um, the star of the decade, sir. There you go. He uh, He's a oh, heck of a singer here. Don't forget the two cats. That That's right. Why do you bring up the cats? Oh, you just mean as part of the mm-hmm. cast? Oh, yep. yes, of course. Ulysses and... I don't think the other one actually has a name. The uh, other one he thought was Ulysses as correct. well. So. <laughs> Falsely identified as Ulysses. Uh, it's set in uh, 60s Greenwich Village, and Oscar Isaac plays a struggling folk singer who um, has just lost his singing partner and is now trying to uh, make it on his own and is having a very tough time doing so. Uh, you spend a great deal of the movie just listening to everyone tell him how much of an asshole he is. Um, but Carrie Mulligan in particular, she is particularly good and satisfying in doing so. Um, it has this really kind of cold, wintry look to it with grays and browns, and that all just kind of contributes to this kind of bleak uh, atmosphere about it. Uh, I, I love the cinematography that gives it all that kind of um, drab light. Um, I love the the music for one. Um, there, I just there's just a lot of uh, there's just soulfulness to it. Um, it's a weird movie to say you love because it's about a guy kind of winding up exactly where he started. That is kind of the trick ending um, in a way is that he is um, right back where we saw him in the first scene of the movie. Um, it's to me maybe kind of about finding the will to go on and they pull off that kind of tricky task of making me empathize with the geek who w- w- empathize with a guy who does in fact turn out to be a bit of a dick. Um, and it's yeah, easily my favorite Oscar Isaac role. Um, hmm. and, uh, yeah, um, I love it. What'd you say you played? Folk songs. Folk songs. Solo act? No, I had a partner. Threw himself off the George Washington Bridge. George Washington Bridge? You throw yourself off the Brooklyn Bridge, traditionally. George Washington Bridge. Who does that? If I had wings, I'd know it's done. I'd fly the river. Explain the cat. What's its name? I, I don't know. It's the Gorkine's cat. It slipped out and I don't have the key. Inside Lewin Davis. It's a good movie. It is a good movie. What is your number six? My number six, and I believe the last entry of this episode, is Richard Linklater's Boyhood. Starring Patricia Arquette and Ethan Hawke. And I believe a Richard Linklater's son. Is that correct? I think it's his daughter. Lorelai Linklater. Oh, it's, it's Lorelai Linklater. And then who is the son? Eller Coltrane. And how, who's, um, whose child is that though? Oh, uh, that I don't know. Like in real life? Yeah. That I don't know. I don't okay. Know I was under the impression it was like Linklater's son or something. Oh, um, that I am not aware of. All right. Well, hot take. We love this movie, but don't actually know who the boy is. (laughs) Um, We spent 18 years with him and still don't know. um, This is a film that um, shows the 
everything. It shows the process of life for um, not just a boy, but for uh, our mother character, Patricia Arquette, for the sister, um, who's played by Lorelai. Um, it also shows us Ethan Hawke um, coming to terms with um, being a father and then embracing it to the point where he has another child um, as his original children, who he scarcely parented, um, graduate and go off to college. Um, it's in many ways about the procession of drunken assholes through one boy's life, as he directly says uh, in the film. Um, it's a collection of moments that make up a life, and this film is a collection of those moments. Um, and it's it's deeply sincere, and uh, it's really hard to explain why this is one of the best films ever, not just of the decade, but it is. Um, it's because of the scope of shooting something linearly over 18 years. It's because of it being so well edited, um, so careful and, and thoughtful and also belligerent and angry and, um, truthful and merciless and... Don't worry about it. What if we can use the bumpers? You don't want the bumpers. Life doesn't give you bumpers. I just love this movie and it's really weird how many lines it straddles and how I can't really tell you that it has a genre. It feels like it's a documentary more than anything. I hope you'll be okay talking about it again on part two. I will. But that's it for part one. Run! Go! Get to the chopper! We have to go. I'm coming with you. That was brilliant.